Again, good afternoon. Happy Father's Day. I'm pretty sure uh, we're the only church in Vermont, maybe America, maybe the entire world that is preaching on this passage today on Father's Day. It's not necessarily the one you would think to go to. It just so happens that as we've set up our, our schedule, this is the passage that, that fell on today. Uh, it is an amazing passage. Uh, it is also a difficult one. And I'm glad that we get to look at it today uh, together. You know, if you're uh, just joining us, uh, we're in the midst of a sermon series that we're calling Christ and the Old Testament. You know, the Bible tells a story. It tells a story of a good world that's gone bad, and it's a story about God's commitment to saving it and us. You know, in the Old Testament, God promises over and over again that he's going to send a rescuer who's going to save us as well as our beautiful uh, but broken world. Sally Lloyd-Jones, who's the author of the Jesus Storybook Bible, puts it so very well when she says the Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. At the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture. You know, in this series, what we want to do together is look at these Old Testament promises and illusions, right? Not illusions, but illusions with an A. And as we do this, it's my hope that you will begin to see more and more your need for Jesus, and you will also begin to see just how kind and good and gracious God is to sinful people like you and me. This is our last week here in Genesis. Next week, we're going to go to Exodus. The week after that, we'll be in Leviticus. But today, we're here, right, with Abraham. The last story uh, with Abraham, the last story uh, in Genesis. Today's sermon has three points. These are not three steps to becoming dad of the world, you know, best dad in the world, but rather three steps, or excuse me, three uh, parts that are going to help us see who God is, who we are, how much we need Jesus. Right, if you like alliteration, these points will all start with the letter C. Today we're going to see a crisis, right? The test that Abraham faces. We're going to see a challenge that God has for you and for me. And finally, we're going to see the Christ, right? The one whom, to whom this story ultimately points. Right? A crisis, a challenge, and the Christ. Well, the first thing I want you to see today... Uh, is the crisis, the test that God puts before Abraham. You know, in order to understand the nature of this test or crisis that Abraham faces here, we need some context, okay? And let's quickly review what we've learned about Abraham so far, alone in this series, right? In Genesis 12, what Joseph preached on two weeks ago, God calls out to Abraham and says, leave your family and your country And go to the land that I'm going to show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12, two weeks ago. Three chapters later, in Genesis 15, what Joseph preached on last week, God reiterates those promises, and he proves his commitment to them in a covenant-cutting ceremony. Do you remember the broken animal pieces that... Uh, the fire pot, the blazing torch, the Lord himself walked in between. 
God promises that even at the cost of his own life, these promises are going to come true. He really is going to save and bless the world, even if it means that he himself is going to have to die and take our punishment and our place. Okay? But Abraham doesn't always trust God. Okay, Genesis 16, the next chapter is case in point. Right after the covenant cutting ceremony in Genesis 15, right, right after God has promised to give uh, Abraham and Sarah children as numerous as the stars, Sarah says to Abraham, look at me. I'm old, Abraham. There's no way God's promises are going to come true. There's no way that I'm going to be able to have kids. So Sarah tells Abraham, I want you to have sex with my servant, Hagar, and maybe I'll be able to have children through her. Well, in this moment of doubt and disbelief, Abraham goes along with Sarah's plan. He goes and has sex with Hagar, and she bears a son, and they name him Ishmael. But Ishmael is not the son that God had promised. God promised that Abraham and Sarah were going to have a son. Well, sure enough, Abraham and Sarah's faithlessness doesn't forfeit God's faithfulness. And sure enough, and against the odds, Abraham now 100, Sarah now 90, God gives them a son named Isaac. God has indeed kept his promises. And God promises Sarah and Abraham that it's through this child Isaac, right, through this branch of their family tree, that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. You know, as we look over Abraham's life, you could say that his entire life was one giant test or trial, one giant crisis, one schoolhouse of faith. Okay, sometimes Abraham passes the test, for example, Genesis 12, when he leaves and goes to Canaan. Other times, his faith falters, as it did in Genesis 16. All the while, right, Abraham is learning who he is. He's a guy who makes mistakes. Right? He's an undeserving sinner in need of God's grace. And he's also learning who God is, that he is Yahweh, a God who is merciful and gracious, a God who keeps his promises even when we fail to keep ours. Well, this brings us now to Genesis 22, right? The end of Abraham's story. In Genesis 22, Abraham faces the biggest crisis or test of all. You know, in verse 2, God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, the one through whom all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. This is the child And it's through this family tree, this branch of Abraham's family tree, that God intends to bless all the nations of the earth. And he's just asked Abraham to now sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. Well, admittedly, right, Abraham doesn't know exactly what's going to happen up there on the mountain. What he does know is that God has promised to bless all the nations of the earth through this child. That through this branch of his family tree, again, right, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And at this stage in Abraham's life, you know, with his own history of success and failures, Abraham has finally learned that if God has promised to do something, God is going to do it. Though he's not exactly sure what's going to happen on that mountaintop, he is sure that God has promised to bless all the nations of the earth through this child Isaac, And then sure enough, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through Isaac, okay? Even if God has to raise Isaac up from the dead. Okay, I'm not making this up. This is what the writer of Hebrews says, right? 
Uh, in the book of Hebrews, we have a divinely inspired commentary on this text. Listen to what uh, the, the writer of Hebrews says in verses 17 and 19 in chapter 11. You don't have to turn there, you can just listen. Okay. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, right, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He, Abraham, considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Okay, the point is this. Abraham believes that no matter what happens, God is going to keep his promises, and that he and Isaac are going to come off that mountain together. Okay, Abraham believes this. Listen to what he says in verse 5 of chapter 22 in Genesis, okay? He says, I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we will come again to you. If you conjugate every single verb in that verse, in that sentence, they're all rendered in the first person plural, what we would call we, okay? All the verbs are we. We will go over there. We will worship. We will come again to you. Abraham has faith that God is going to keep his promises to bless all the nations of the earth through Isaac, through this family tree, right? Even if it means that he's going to have to raise Isaac from the dead. So Abraham is being tested here. And we know that in the end, Abraham passes the test, right? In the school of faith, Abraham gets the grade. But this still begs the question, right? Why this particular test? You know, why does God ask Abraham to do something so severe? Why does he ask him to sacrifice his son? Isn't that a little messed up? Isn't that a little bit twisted? Some certainly think so. Right? People have read this text and have concluded wrongly that it's fine to do cruel and violent things so long as you believe it's God's will to do that. Okay, people have used this text as a justification for cruel and violent things. God made me do it. Right. Soren Kierkegaard, right, in his book, Fear and Trembling, which is based on Genesis 22, writes that God's command here makes no sense. And Abraham's obedience to this command makes no sense either. Okay, Kierkegaard ultimately concludes that faith is illogical, irrational, and absurd. That it is ultimately a leap in the dark. Some say that Abraham failed this test because he was willing to go along with it. Abraham fails because he's willing to sacrifice his son. He doesn't pass the test, he fails it. And some people say that God is the real failure here. You know, how could this be a test for godliness? We know in the law of Moses that God forbids child sacrifice. And in fact, child sacrifice was one of the horrible practices that the Canaanites were doing that brought judgment upon them in the first place. So what is it? Is God confused or is he being hypocritical? The command teeters on the edge of morality, says one commentator. How can God prohibit murder and then command as it does here? You know, I'm not going to lie and say to you that this is an easy passage. It's not. It's tough. But many of these questions or criticisms are short-sighted or are myopic because they don't take in the whole context of Abraham's life. They don't see the whole saga of Abraham's life. 
This is why we took some time to actually review it. Because Abraham's entire life has been one giant test or crisis in which God is proving himself faithful and trustworthy and deserving of Abraham's love. This test comes within a much larger context of God proving himself to Abraham over and over and over again that he is faithful, that he is loving. Right? Faith is not, as Kierkegaard says, a leap in the dark. Okay, faith is the proper response to God's faithfulness. Faith is the proper response to God's proven track record of promises made and promises kept. God does not say, Abraham, I want you to follow me blindly. He says, Abraham, I want you to consider what I've done. Look at me, right? Look at my track record. Over and over and over again, I have kept my word to you. Over and over and over again, I have proven myself faithful. Even though, Abraham, you have not. Which is why, because I am faithful, is the reason why you can step out in faith. And trust me. There is more to this test than just simply trusting God and his promises. Okay, in this final test, God is also exposing the seeds of idolatry in Abraham's heart. Okay, this gets to the real heart okay, of the test here in Genesis 22. God wants Abraham to let go of his idols and to love him wholeheartedly. Abraham wanted this child his whole entire life. As Tim Keller has pointed out, no man had ever longed for a son more than Abraham. He had given up everything else to wait for this. Isaac was everything to Abraham. And he was, as this text is at pains to point out, his son, right? His only son, whom he loves. Three times it says it, verses 2, 12, 16. You know, ever since Isaac was born, the center of Abraham's life was shifting, His world was beginning to revolve around Isaac, right, and not God. And Abraham probably didn't realize it, but Isaac was becoming an idol of sorts. And this gets to the heart of the test. In Genesis 22, you can almost hear God saying, Abraham, you trust me, but why? Do you love me for who I am, or am I a means to an end? Who is your heart really clinging to? To whom do you really look for your ultimate value, significance, security, and worth? Abraham, who's your real savior and God? Is it Isaac or is it me? God wants Abraham to love him for the right reasons. And he wants to teach Abraham that his significance and security is not wrapped up in Isaac, but it's wrapped up in God. No doubt, okay, God's request of Abraham is severe. I mean, it cuts straight to Abraham's heart, right? Isaac is the one that he had been waiting for his entire life. Isaac was everything that he had ever wanted. Now that he had him, right, the pivot of Abraham's life, the thing around which his whole life turned, began to change, and his life began to revolve around Isaac and not God. God saw it, he knew it, which is why in this act of severe mercy, God is testing him. He's putting his finger on this pressure point. Okay, God wants to remind Abraham that he and not Isaac is his real savior, his real security, and his real God. So he says to him, 
I want you to be willing to let this child go. Abraham says, okay. But, and this is absolutely critical, okay, Abraham doesn't follow blindly. He's willing to give up everything for God because God has already promised to give up everything for him. Think back to last week. Abraham is willing to give up everything for God because God has already promised that he's willing to give up everything for him. Let me summarize our first point, which, friends, trust me, it's the longest. The next two points aren't as long as this one. Genesis 22 presents us with a crisis. Abraham's world was beginning to revolve around Isaac and not God. God wants Abraham to let go of Isaac, to not make Isaac the center of his world, to trust that he and not Isaac was his real savior, security in God. Now this brings us to our second point, right, which is the challenge. God has for us a challenge. The challenge is this. God wants you to give up your idols too. Okay? God wants you to give up your idols too. You know, parents, for some of you, your kids are your whole life. Your world revolves around them. Now, God isn't calling you to sacrifice them in your home. But that said, he doesn't want you worshiping your kids either. He wants you to find your value, significance, security, and worth in him. He wants you to love and worship him. Those of you without kids, single or married, right? God wants you to let go of your idols too. You know, what is the Isaac in your life? What is the thing that you obsess over or maybe love more than God himself? Whatever that is, God wants you to let it go. You know, Megan, my wife Megan, she told me a funny story this week. I mentioned that I was going to be preaching on this passage. And she said, oh my gosh, I have a story for you. She says, when I was in college, she went to Davidson College, uh, she says, I was in a class about Genesis, and the professor lectured on Genesis 22, and you know what happened? My boyfriend dumped me the next day. (laughs) She's like, Abraham called, you know, God called Abraham to let go of the thing that he loves, and so my boyfriend dumped me the next day. And so she had some beef with her professor, actually, for a little while. But Megan raised, you know, a really good point. God wants us to let go of our idols, but not every love is idolatrous. God wants us to let go of our idols, but not every love is idolatrous. So let me be clear, you know, what exactly is an idol? Okay, an idol is something that you worship besides God. Okay, an idol is a good thing that you've turned into an ultimate thing. An idol is something other than God that you look to for your meaning, value, significance, and worth. Your idol is anything that your heart turns to and says, because I have this, you can fill in the blank, my life has meaning. Because I have this, I'm beautiful. Because I have this, I'm safe and I'm secure. Because I have this, I'm okay. I'm loved. I don't know what that thing is for you. How do you fill in the blank? If it's not God, friends, it's an idol. God wants us to find our meaning, our value, our significance, and worth in Him, not in these other things, and not in these other pursuits. You know, Martin Luther said that your God is whatever your heart clings to. I love that. Your God is whatever your heart clings to. Not everything you love is an idol. 
After all, God wants us to love a lot of things, but he doesn't want our heart clinging to them. Okay? He doesn't want us to build or base our lives around these other things. Right? He wants us to build and base our lives around him. So the question is not so much what do you love, the question is rather what gives your life meaning, significance, value, and worth? What is your heart clinging to? Friends, it's not God, it's an idol. When God tested Abraham, he didn't want Isaac to become his idol. He didn't want Abraham to build and base his life around his son. So what gives your life meaning, value, significance, security, worth? What, when you have it, makes you say, now I'm okay, now I am somebody? What do you obsess over? What, when you have it, sends you soaring? And what, when it's taken away, crushes you and sends you into the pits of despair? What is your heart clinging to? Is it God? Is it his love? Is it his promises? Or is it your looks? Is it your grades? Is it your success? Is it how many friends you have on Facebook? Is it how much money is in your bank account? Is it how many people showed up to your Bible study? Is it how picture perfect your house is? How you answer these questions is revealing. Okay? What is your heart clinging to besides God? What are you building and basing your life around? God wants you to give it up, up for him. He wants to be, as we sung, our all in all. To not make these passions or these pursuits or these people or these things our all in all, but him. God is challenging you to give these things up, to let them go, to stop clinging onto them, to hold them loosely. But this feels like death. It feels like death because these things are so close to your heart. In some sense, it feeds you. Right? You're not going after these idols for no reason. They might not feed you a good meal, but they do feed you. And your heart is clinging to them. God wants you to let them go. If you take this thing away, I have nothing and I am nothing. You know, that's the cry of a heart that's clinging to an idol. That's how you can tell it's an idol. You think that you need it to live. God's challenge to let go of our idols feels like death, but it's for our good. It's for our good because when our lives begin to revolve around something else rather than God, our lives begin to spiral out of control. It is dysfunctional and it is destructive. You're anxious, upset, angry, and feeling empty a lot of the time because you're trying to fill a God-sized hole in your heart with these other things, and it doesn't work. It cannot feed you like he can. Okay? You've got to push your idols to the side. You've got, you cannot let them have center stage in your life. And God says, I want you to do this. I want you to trust me. It's for your good. But it feels like death. A classic example of this comes from C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Great Divorce. And I want to just read you a small excerpt of it. I just, you can close your eyes even and just listen to the dialogue. Okay, in this story, there's a ghost-like man who's trying to get into heaven, but he's got this lizard on his shoulder. It's a metaphor for his idol, and this lizard is whispering in his ear. 
Well, an angel approaches him and he tells him, before he can enter heaven, he's got to kill this lizard. He's got to kill the idol. So listen to this dialogue. Do you want him, that is the lizard, killed? Asked the angel. He didn't say anything about killing him at first. It's the only way, said the angel. Shall I kill it? Honestly, I don't think there's the slightest necessity for that. I'm sure I shall be able to keep it in order now. I think the gradual process is going to be a lot better than killing it. The gradual process is no use at all. How can I tell you to kill it? You'd kill me if you did. It is not so. Why are you hurting me now? I never said it wouldn't hurt you. I said it wouldn't kill you. Right? Then, the lizard, then the lizard begins to speak to the man. He says, be careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you, and he will. Then you will be without me forever and ever. It's not natural. How could you live? Yes, yes, I know there are no real pleasures now, only dreams. But aren't dreams better than nothing? Then it goes back to the angel and the man. Have I your permission, said the angel? I know it will kill me. It won't. But supposing it did, you're right. It would be better to be dead than to live with this creature. Then I may. Damn and blast you. Go on, get it over with. Do what you like, bellowed the man. But he ended whimpering, God help me. God help me. Sometimes, my friends, it feels like the God who is actually trying to save you is killing you. Your Savior, the one who's trying to save you, is killing you. Sometimes it feels like that. I want to give you one more illustration to maybe prove this point. There was a missionary uh, named Elizabeth Elliot. Her husband died in South America. Um, she, uh, she tells the story uh, of when she visited some of her friends in northern Wales. Okay, her friends were shepherds. They had a sheep farm. And one day she saw a shepherd friend of hers go and, and grab this sheep. And they have to go and dunk this sheep in a giant vat of antiseptic. If they don't do it, the sheep literally will be eaten alive by all sorts of parasites, ticks, and, and so on. And so the shepherd goes ahead and he grabs the sheep and he takes it to this vat of antiseptic and he plunges it into the antiseptic. Well, the sheep starts fighting with the shepherd and kicking back pulling its head you know, out from under the antiseptic, and the shepherd has to push it back down under it again, holding it there. And the sheep is thrashing madly, trying to you know, get its gasp of air, and the shepherd has his hands firmly but gently on the sheep, pushing it back down. And Elizabeth Elliot mused as she watched this, and she said, I wonder what, it, what it's like to feel like your shepherd is trying to kill you. I wonder what it's like to feel like your shepherd is trying to kill you. Genesis 22 reminds us that sometimes your shepherd who is trying to save you will sometimes seem dangerous to you, like he's trying to kill you. It feels like death, right, when he's asking you to give up your idols. This brings me to our third and final point. Okay, God is asking you to give up your idols. What feels like your everything to trust and follow him. Here's the thing. You will never be able to do this unless, like Abraham, you trust and believe that God is willing to give up everything for you. You will not be able to do this. You will not be able to give up everything unless you trust, like Abraham, that God is willing to give up everything for you. It just, you won't do it. You know, Abraham had God's promises. 
And he saw those promises kept over and over again. And that is why when God asked him to do this, he was able to step out in faith and in love and in trust. In the same way, I know as that you are like me, right? That you need proof, right? You need proof that God is faithful. You need proof that he can be trusted. Most of all, you need proof that he loves you. And this brings me to point number three, right? The Christ. My friends, Jesus is the proof that you need. Jesus is the proof that your heart is after, that God loves you. You know, on a mount called Moriah, God tested Abraham. Do you love me? Do you trust me? And Abraham proved he loved God because he was willing to sacrifice the one he loved the most, Isaac, right? His son, his only son, whom he loved. Fast forward 2,000 years. On a mount called Golgotha, God proved he loved us. How? Because he sacrificed the one he loved the most. His son, his only son, whom he loved, and he did this for us. God was not asking Abraham to do anything that he himself was not willing to do, and in fact had pledged himself to doing many years ago. John 3.16 reads, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that what? That he gave his only Son. His only Son, whom he loved. From Genesis, Genesis 3 onwards, right, God has been promising to bless and to save the world. In Genesis 3, he says, a seed of the woman, a child of Eve, is going to crush the head of the serpent, but get wounded in the process. In Genesis 15, God says, I will take your punishment in your place. If you break covenant, I will die so that you may live. And in Genesis 22, we, we see here that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through this family tree, through this line of Isaac. But in order for that to happen, a sacrifice has to be made. Look at verses 13 and 14. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. You want to know if giving up your idols is worth it. Is this a good trade? Can God be trusted? Does he really love me? Friends, Jesus is the proof that you need. Looking at the cross, you and I can finally say, now we know that you love us, for you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. He who did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? When the magnitude of this dawns on you, it makes it possible for you finally to rest our hearts in him rather than in anything else. Looking at Jesus on the cross, we now have the power to let go of our idols. Anything our hearts are clinging to besides God, because God has proven his love for us. Because he really has given up everything for us. Because he gave up his son. Why? Because he gave us Jesus. Please pray with me.